From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. This is a confirmation for life. There's no appeal. There's no do-over. There's no chance to get it right later. It has to be gotten right the first time. And there should have been a thorough review of Judge Kavanaugh's record. That's Ron Klain. He has quite the resume. He was chief counsel to the Senate Judiciary Committee, chief of staff to Vice Presidents Al Gore and Joe Biden, chief of staff to Attorney General Janet Reno, and was involved in the confirmation of Justices Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan, among others. I speak with him about the confirmation hearings of Judge Brett Kavanaugh and what happens next. So we'll get to your questions in just a second, but first I want to announce that Stay Tuned will be going on tour this fall. We'll be doing a number of live shows. In October, we'll be in New York. And in November, we'll be in Los Angeles and our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Dates and details are coming soon. To get them first, go to cafe.com slash preet and sign up. That's cafe.com slash preet. I expect you to come to all three. Okay, now let's get to your questions. Hey, Preet, this is Don Wiggins from uh, Spotswood, New Jersey. In light of the recent developments, particularly the um, anonymous editorial in the New York Times talking about the 25th Amendment, I thought I would ask you, so how does the 25th Amendment work? Love the show. Keep up the great work. Thanks, Preet. Bye. Don, thanks for your question. There's been a lot of talk about the 25th Amendment, in part because of that anonymous New York Times op-ed, but there's been other talk of the 25th Amendment before. By way of background, you should know that the 25th Amendment was adopted fairly recently in constitutional history in the aftermath of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. After going through the process for amending the Constitution, the 25th Amendment was adopted in 1967. So that seems like a long time ago, but in the sort of span of constitutional history in this country, not very long ago at all. So what all the discussion is about relates to a provision of the 25th Amendment when the vice president and a majority of members of the cabinet conclude that the president is unable, this is a direct quote from the amendment, unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office. So if that were to happen, which is a big deal and not likely uh, in the case of Vice President Pence, no matter what Donald Trump does, he would have to transmit notice of that along with a majority of the cabinet voting in favor of removal to the Congress. That doesn't settle the matter because then the president has the opportunity, if he's able, to disagree with that determination And once the president does that, then the vice president and a majority of the cabinet would once again have to say they disagree, essentially, and put it back to the Congress. And then Congress, for the purposes of removing the president under the 25th Amendment, would have to, in both houses, agree by a two-thirds vote that the president was unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office. So when we talk about, you know, potential long-shot contingencies of what might happen with this presidency... The possibility of the 25th Amendment being invoked successfully, I think, is basically zero. The possibility of impeachment, which people talk about as well, is actually higher. Impeachment only requires a simple majority of members of the House of Representatives. And remember, people forget this all the time. The impeachment is not a conviction. The impeachment is not removal from office. The impeachment is merely essentially the lodging of charges against the president. And then a president, like Bill Clinton got, is entitled to a trial in the Senate. So simple majority in the House of Representatives, but then conviction is required in the Senate by a two-thirds majority, and only then can the president be removed, and that's never happened. So impeachment is a super long shot 
25th Amendment is, I think, has a zero shot. And the other point I'll make about it is, you know, I appreciate the speculation. It's kind of interesting, palace intrigue to talk about whether or not folks have invoked the 25th Amendment and Omarosa has been on TV suggesting that people would text each other with some abbreviation uh, hashtag to talk about the 25th Amendment. But for people who think that the president's policies are bad, for people who think there needs to be a check on President Trump, for people who think that the next president should be someone different, you know, it's a little bit wasting your time, I think, to be focusing on the 25th Amendment. If you really want to change the direction of the country, if you really want to have a check on the president, if you really want to have a new person in office in 2020, then the thing that works best and most easily is voting in 2018 and in 2020, and actually in every election after that too. So go vote. The next question comes from a tweet from Z Bader, who writes, uh, at Preet Bharara, I would like to hear your comments to this tweet of DJT, I guess meaning the president. Z is referring to the following tweet from Donald Trump, quoting Lou Dobbs, and the quote is this, Eric Holder could be running the Justice Department right now, and it would be behaving no differently than it is, close quote, Lou Dobbs. Now, folks may remember long, long ago, Lou Dobbs was a fairly sane commentator on various news networks relating to business and would talk about micro and macroeconomic issues. When I was a kid, my dad was, you know, would follow the markets and we would hear Lou Dobbs kind of wonkishly talk about the stock market and about unemployment rates. Something has clearly happened to him and he now spends a lot of his time railing against both legal and illegal immigration. And to my mind, doesn't make a lot of sense. Not the greatest source in the world to quote, but here we are. So I have two reactions to the the notion that the Holder or Obama Justice Department would be doing everything the same. On the one hand, that's ludicrous, because with respect to various matters of policy, whether it's immigration policy or the use of prosecutorial discretion or how to deal with voting rights, all sorts of issues as a policy matter, this Justice Department under Trump is taking a very different tack from the Obama Justice Department, and I know something about it because I served actually in both Justice Departments. So on policy, things are different. On policy, I think there's been a turn rightward and a turn inward when you're talking about immigration. Now, on the other hand, the ways in which both Justice Departments are the same is actually a good thing because the vast majority of matters, cases, charges brought against individuals in this country are done by nonpartisan, apolitical, career prosecutors and agents like those who serve in the Southern District of New York under me and who are still there, the vast majority of them or in the Eastern District of New York, or in the main Justice Department office in Washington, D.C., because they do their jobs without fear or favor, and they don't pay attention to whether or not someone is a Democrat or a Republican. There may be differences in policy about how to exercise discretion in terms of leniency or aggressiveness or what hoops you have to jump through, but the basic essence of how justice is done in the country should not vary from president to president or administration to administration. And on the last day of my job, when I said farewell after I was fired a year and a half ago, I told the folks in my office, some of whom were not happy about what was happening, and some of whom I think thought maybe they should leave as well. I said, look, your work is the same. There's no Democratic way or Republican way. There's no Obama way or Trump way to prosecute fraud or to prosecute robbery or to prosecute homicide. You look at the facts, you look at the law, and you bring the cases that are appropriate to bring under the law and the Constitution. That's it. And you know the, the Obama Justice Department, whether you like the case or not, brought cases against Democratic 
members of Congress, including John Edwards. That was an ill-fated case. And the current Justice Department has brought, in its discretion, cases recently against two Republican congressmen. And that's because the facts and the law dictate it. So in a manner of speaking, President Trump may wish there was something unique and different about the Trump Justice Department in terms of protecting him or his cronies, but thank goodness there isn't. This next question comes from Twitter from Pollock, who says, Sir, I listened to your podcast since episode one. Over time, I've heard about voting bans for past felons in three states of Florida, Kentucky, and Iowa. What is the rationale behind this? Hashtag AskPreet. So those aren't the only states that have some form of ban on felons being able to vote. And I suppose that it could be justified in some sense in the same way that, you know, there are other rights that are sometimes taken away from people who have been convicted of felonies. But as I think I've said on the show before, and as I intend to say more publicly going forward, I think the idea that you have committed a felony of whatever nature, and you have been sentenced to prison, and you finished the prison sentence, and you paid your so-called debt to society, and we're trying to reintegrate you into society and make you a full-fledged member of your community, that the idea that you are then forever banned from voting in local or federal elections makes no sense to me. Uh, And that's coming from a former federal prosecutor who was known to be a little bit tough. I think that Florida in particular has disenfranchised millions of people. I think there's some root of racism and disenfranchisement in particular of minority communities, which I think is abhorrent. And there is a ballot initiative right now in that state, at least, that I hope will pass and will re-enfranchise a lot of folks. Thanks for the question. This next question comes also in a tweet from Priyank Deshmukh, who asks at Preet Bharara, Hey Preet, which is the best pizza joint in Manhattan? Well, the answer to that is very easy. It's Joe's Pizza on Carmine Street. Look, I know that lots of people have strong views about pizza in New York. I like thin crust, and I have a lot of memories going to Joe's late at night when I was a younger person and would sometimes be out late at night. And there was one occasion where I didn't feel like walking all the way down from my apartment to Carmine Street, and I was really looking for a slice, and I wandered into the closest raised pizza, and I uh, I paid my whatever, buck fifty or two bucks, for the slice, and I looked at it, and it didn't seem digestible to me, and I decided I was going to make a sacrifice of it by walking back down 12 blocks, and it must have been, I don't know, 2 in the morning, 2.30 in the morning, to Joe's Pizza, and I was going to present it to the Joe's Pizza guy and say, look what I just bought from somewhere else. It doesn't come close to the standards of your pizza. Please throw this away from me and replace it with your own slice. And I was very excited about the dramatic gesture and sacrifice I was going to make. And I got there, and and as I was walking down those blocks, I kept thinking, maybe I'll get the next slice free because of the gesture I was making. So I get to Joe's Pizza, and I approach the counter, and I have the slice in my hand. And before I can say anything, the Joe's Pizza guy looks down and with great disdain shakes his head and says, that is not Joe's. And he takes the pizza from my hand and throws it out and then asks me to pay for my next slice which I happily did. The answer is Joe's Pizza. My guest this week is Ron Klain. Now, there are people who opine on the court who are maybe more common household names, but there is no one I'd rather have on the show this week to explain last week's confirmation hearings for Brett Kavanaugh. Ron has worked on the confirmation of several justices, including Kagan and Sotomayor. He was an editor of the Harvard Law Review and clerked for Supreme Court Justice Byron White. He was chief counsel to the Senate Judiciary Committee in the late 1980s, 
he knows of what he speaks. I talked to him about the Kavanaugh hearings, the documents we haven't seen, the questioning from Democratic senators, and most importantly, what happens next. That's coming up. Stay tuned. You know what's not smart? So many things. Lying to federal investigators, picking fights on Twitter, driving through Midtown at rush hour, and another not-so-smart thing, the way hiring used to be. Job sites that overwhelm you with tons of the wrong resumes. Life is too short to look at irrelevant resumes. And now more than ever, we all know the importance of surrounding yourself with the best people. Now there's a smarter way at ZipRecruiter.com Preet. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology finds the right people for you and actively invites them to apply. It's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com Preet. That's ZipRecruiter.com P-R-E-E-T. Fall is here. The political world is heating up, and most nights there's just no time to cook. When the news is coming fast and furious, it's tempting to get takeout or grab a quick snack. But now, instead of spending 20 minutes wondering what to have for dinner, you can use that time to prepare your own delicious, healthy meal with the new quick and easy meal plan from Sunbasket. The other night, in fact, I had one of Sunbasket's paleo meals. And as I was enjoying the steak, I thought, man, I've made it. This podcast is finally, literally feeding my family. And paleo is just one of Sunbasket's options. They help you eat your kind of healthy, with options like gluten-free, lean and clean, vegan, Mediterranean, and more. You can mix and match from any of their 18 weekly recipes and skip or cancel anytime. You get pre-measured, easy-to-prep ingredients and organic produce delivered to your door, now with 10- and 15-minute recipes. I mean, it practically takes 10 minutes to heat up a frozen burrito. Instead, you can cook dishes like super-fast Thai turkey lettuce cups or simple sausage tacos with bell pepper, chili salsa, and queso fresco. Go to sunbasket.com slash preet today to learn more and get $35 off your first order. That's sunbasket.com slash preet to get $35 off your order today. sunbasket.com slash preet. Ron Klain, welcome to the show. So good to have you. Thanks for having me, Preet. So, you know, we could go over your um, various experiences You've worked for pretty much everybody. You've had experiences mm-hmm. dealing with the Ebola crisis, been chief of staff to an attorney general, to a vice president. But most notably for this period of time, you were the chief counsel at the Senate Judiciary Committee some time ago, and we had some proceedings last week in connection with putting the next Supreme Court justice on the court. It was an interesting series of hearings for Merrick Garland last week, right? Right. Yeah, you know, uh, it was great to see Judge Garland up there finally getting the hearing that was two-year overdue, and I thought he did Yeah, it a took some time. It was a little bit delayed. Little and I, delay. thought he, I thought Merrick was treated pretty fairly. What do you think? Yeah, I thought, no, it was, uh, you know, fair hearing for him, the hearing he deserved, and, uh, you know, his answers were really spot on, so I expect him to be confirmed any day now. Yeah, so, <laughs> all right, it's not actually not funny. So, no. So um, I apologize to our listeners. It's not funny at all. It's kind of, you know, some people call it galling. Some people call it an injustice. So why wasn't it Merrick Garland? Why was it Brett Kavanaugh? Well, so, you know, obviously it wasn't Merrick Garland for a couple reasons. One, we, Democrats, progressives, the Obama administration, failed to 
put together the kind of political effort that we should have put together to get Judge Garland confirmed back in 2016 when he was nominated by President Obama, nominated on a timeline and a time plan that every other nominees in the past 100 years got a hearing, got confirmed or got voted down, whatever, but got a hearing, got a vote. Uh, we didn't deliver that for Judge Garland. Well, how were they supposed to do that? They don't have the numbers in the Senate. Yeah, we didn't have the numbers in the Senate back then. You know, I just think we probably should have put together a, a better effort to rally support for Judge Garland to uh, really increase the pressure on the Republicans. Uh, in the end, I suppose, they had the power. They had the power to say no. They exercised that power. They paid too little price for that. Uh, and then, of course, 2016 happened. Donald Trump uh, won the White House put uh, Neil Gorsuch on the Supreme Court and is now trying to put Brett Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court and utterly and radically transform the direction of uh, the court, of our constitutional rights, and so much about our society. I want to get into all of that in a moment. But just sticking with the democratic effort for a second, do you think, in part, people didn't fight hard enough for Merrick Garland because, like everyone else, they assumed that Hillary Clinton was going to become the president and so Garland would get his shot nevertheless? I think that's certainly some of it, Preet. I mean, I do think that, you know, the greatest historical irony about 2016 is the only way Donald Trump could win is because no one thought he could. You know, that factored into perhaps how the Obama administration handled the evidence about Russian interference, how Republicans on the Hill dealt with Trump, and indeed how the Garland thing played out. Right. I and think how Jim everyone, Comey decided to, to put out a letter. Comey himself has said it played a part in his decision to send the letter, his worry about his legitimacy if Clinton had won and he hadn't sent the letter. So a lot of people made a lot of decisions based on the premise that Donald Trump would lose. And as a result, Donald Trump won. You know, one should never assume and one should never assume again this time around. So now here we have Brett Kavanaugh nominated and the Democrats still have their numbers problem. They don't have enough people within their own caucus to block. Are they doing enough this time or do you cast the same aspersions on them as you do about 2016? No, I think the Democrats have put on a really good fight. I think most of them did a really good job in the hearings of putting pointed questions to Judge Kavanaugh. I'd like to see more of the members of the Senate come out against him a little more quickly than they have. But we saw a couple uh, people announce their opposition to Judge Kavanaugh uh, every day this week. And I think that's going to continue. Look, I, I think the hearings as a whole pierced the fundamental contentions that Republicans had about the nomination. You know, they, they said that Donald Trump uh, ran a campaign saying he would appoint conservatives to the Supreme Court, and he won the election, and that Kavanaugh was clearly the best person for the job, and therefore he was nominated. And I think the facts show that that story is missing some key pieces, and I think the hearings really brought that out. So there was a swirling controversy about documents. And on the Democratic side, they said, and I think they had a good argument, that the documents from the time that Brett Kavanaugh worked in the White House should be released because he worked on policy issues and they were you know, incredibly formative for him. And on the other hand, the Republicans said, well, you don't need to see all the documents because there is executive privilege and also he's been a judge for 12 years. And so any kind of analysis you want to do about his judicial temperament and his judicial ideology such as it is can be gleaned from his opinions. So who's right about that and how did that play out in your mind? I think there's no question that the committee had uh, the right to see the documents. And indeed, I think it had an obligation to get the documents. So look, every modern nominee has turned over all their 
documents from prior service in the executive branch to the Judiciary Committee. That included Chief Justice Roberts, who had service in the executive branch, and more recently, Elena Kagan, who served two different jobs in the Clinton administration, highly similar to the jobs Brett Kavanaugh served in the Bush administration. Every single piece of paper, every single one from that time was turned over to the Judiciary Committee, and 99% of them were made public and put on the internet. So with Kavanaugh, before you get to the issue of executive privilege, the bulk of his documents weren't even requested by the committee. That was his service as staff secretary. Now, staff secretary sounds like kind of a technical job and has the word secretary in it, but it's a really important job in the White House. When advisors to the president disagree, staff secretary pulls that advice together and writes up a summary and advice to the president. And if you think staff secretary is an unimportant job, I can tell you it was a job John Podesta held in the Clinton White House before he became White House chief of staff. And Kavanaugh himself says it was the most influential job in his thinking about executive power and a number of other legal issues. And so those documents, the committee didn't even try to get those documents. When you say the committee didn't try to get them, you mean the Republican chair. You don't mean that the Democrats didn't want to get them. Correct. The Republican chair, uh, Chuck Grassley, broke precedent here, didn't really do it on a bipartisan basis, said, I'm in charge of the committee. I'm going to make the document request. We won't even ask for these documents from his service as staff secretary. So before we get to the question of which documents among the pile they asked for were withheld because of executive privilege, the largest pile of documents from Kavanaugh were never even considered by the committee. How do you think that comes about? Do you think Grassley knows, well, the White House will be angry if we ask for them? And is there a consultation between the White House and the judiciary chair about what should be requested? And if so, is that inappropriate? Yeah. So look, I think We know from reporting that Mitch McConnell said, hey, to Trump, don't pick Kavanaugh because he has this document pile, and I think it'll be difficult to get him confirmed with all those documents. Right. Trump picked him anyway, and then they went to work on not submitting the documents. They had a workaround. They had a double workaround because they got Grassley to restrict the document request. That was the first big workaround. And then for the documents they did request – They did something really extraordinary, Preet. They didn't let the National Archives submit these documents. They didn't have them review which documents should be withheld by executive privilege. They had a private lawyer uh, that former President Bush picked be the decider on what documents the committee got. And that lawyer happened to be Brett Kavanaugh's former deputy. Also happens to be, I should disclose, a friend of mine. Yes, and I don't mean to uh, disparage him as a lawyer, obviously a very talented lawyer, but nonetheless... But he he worked directly for Brett Kavanaugh. But he worked directly for Brett Kavanaugh. He is acting at the direction of the prior president. Correct. He's not a lawyer who works with the committee. And not a lawyer who works for the archives, which in the case of the Kagan nomination, were the arbiter of what documents got turned over. So it's an extraordinary procedure on top of an extraordinary procedure, on top of an extraordinary procedure, which means that really the committee saw maybe 7, 8, 10% of the total amount of documents that should have seen from the time Kavanaugh served in the White House. Right. And that lawyer, of course, is the now famous Bill Burke. Indeed. I watched the hearings and kept hearing senator after senator saying, who the hell is Bill Burke? Uh, who indeed? Who indeed? Who indeed? Well, not the person who should have been deciding what documents the Senate Judiciary Committee got. But then there's a third issue with respect to the documents that's confusing to a lot of people. So once documents then came to the Judiciary Committee, the senators all were able to see them, but a large number of them were unable to be viewed by the public or by the press because they were marked committee confidential. This was a a weird and odd procedure that people had not seen before. 
explain the whole controversy around having documents but not allowing them to be used at the hearing. Yeah, so um, this again was the third irregularity on top of the other irregularities, which is once the documents finally were given to the Judiciary Committee, Chairman Grassley said these documents will be committee confidential, which is like double secret probation from Animal <laughs> House. Right. It's a, it's a it's status a, that doesn't These really documents exist. have cooties. You cannot use yeah, these, these documents. Have cooties. Only people with special gloves can read them. So as a result of that designation, that unprecedented designation, the documents could only be seen by senators. Chairman Grassley took the position they couldn't be used in the hearings at all. I, I don't I don't even get that. Yeah. Even in crazy places, explanations have to be given. What was the explanation given as to why certain documents that were not classified, that bore on the qualifications and on the quality of the representations made by this nominee, why they had to be committee confidential, especially when ultimately many of them were made public and were inevitably going to be made public? The short answer to that question is that there are always, with regard to every nominee, some documents that are kept confidential by the committee. The committee, for example, gets nominees' credit reports and other personal information about them. It's information that obviously the senators need to see to make sure someone's you know, not corrupt or doesn't have some kind of problem. Those kinds of documents are indeed kept confidential. The senators can see them, but they're not supposed to be made public. The hundreds of thousands of pages of Brett Kavanaugh's government documents should never have been committee confidential. They're way outside the realm of what's been considered committee confidential in the past. And it's just a, really an abuse of a designation that has a very, very, very limited purpose. So do you think part of the reason to keep those things committee confidential so that senators on the Democratic side couldn't sort of examine Rick Kavanaugh's views with the strength of those documents in the open hearing? Because by the end, a lot of that stuff became public. Some of it became public, and I agree. I think the basic approach to the Republicans was to do whatever they could to shield Brett Kavanaugh from scrutiny. They shielded him from scrutiny by not asking for many documents. They shielded him from scrutiny by allowing this extraordinary process to withhold documents. They shielded him from scrutiny by then saying those documents couldn't be used to question him in public. Several Democratic senators rebelled against that and insisted they were going to use the documents and did use the documents. But overall, this was an effort to kind of put a big cone of protection around Judge Kavanaugh and prevent him from getting the kind of scrutiny we should all, whatever your partisan affiliation is, we should all expect he to get. And I, you know, I wrote a, a column on this where I made the point that the person who should most want these documents to come out is Brett Kavanaugh. Because here's the bottom line. Under the Presidential Records Act, these documents will eventually come out. They're confidential now, but starting in 2019 and picking up in 2020, under the Presidential Records Act, all these documents will gradually be released. But he'll be on the court. He will be on the court. I think it could be a, an institutional embarrassment, maybe even an institutional crisis, if something comes out later that really calls into question his suitability for confirmation. Senators will have voted for him, put him on the court for life, and then these documents will come out. And it would be better for all of us for, and for him to face the documents, to face the questions now. Presumably he has answers. Presumably he has explanations. If for some reason he doesn't, then that's definitely a reason why we should know about that now before he's confirmed, not after he's confirmed for life. So when you are having your Supreme Court confirmation hearing, we're going yeah. to get all your documents? Yeah, I don't think you need to worry about that too much, but I, I can't know. tell you. I went In the intro, I went through the litany of your qualifications. So, we, you know, we can talk about that another time. I don't think Trump's going to nominate you. No, I'm pretty sure about that. I think <laughs> we're pretty safe for a couple years here at least. And then the final sort of 
the document irregularity that led to fireworks at the beginning of the hearing was the dumping of, I think, something like 42,000 documents literally the night before the hearings. And anyone who's practiced law, as this point was made repeatedly at the hearing, when you get a huge document dump on the eve of a hearing or a trial, you get a continuance. You don't proceed the next day. And, and so what did you make of kind of the hot language by various senators at the beginning of the hearing? Well, look, clearly it was an attempt to jam uh, the committee with these documents. And it's even more compelling. The case for a delay here is even more compelling than in a trial or some other kind of litigation. First of all, this is a confirmation for life. There, there's no appeal. There's no do-over. There's no chance to get it right later. It has to be gotten right the first time. And so uh, there should have been a delay for all the documents, certainly for these last 40,000 pages dumped on the committee in the wee hours of the morning before the first day of the hearings. And there should have been a thorough review of Judge Kavanaugh's record. You know, good or bad, right or wrong, uh, everything should have been on the table. But if you're the majority, you can get away with it. Well, you know, no majority ever has tried it before. And indeed, Democrats were the majority when Elena Kagan was nominated to the Supreme Court. And both the Democrats and the Republicans on the committee agreed that the hearing wouldn't start till all the documents were received. Republicans complained that they only had them for a few weeks as opposed to a couple of hours. And they said that wasn't enough time. So there are precedents here. There are past practices here. All of them were blown through to jam through the Kavanaugh nomination. So there are a lot of issues that people are concerned about because the Supreme Court, nine men and women decide a lot of things about freedom and equality in this country. Let's pick two. Let's talk about Roe v. Wade and reproductive yeah. rights. And let's talk about executive power because that's important in the age of, of Donald Trump, even more so than usual. So on the issue of Roe v. Wade, you've been very strong on this. You said absolutely Brett Kavanaugh will be a vote to overturn Roe v. Wade. Why is that? Let's go back to how Brett Kavanaugh got picked for this. The Republicans made a big deal about the fact that Donald Trump campaigned on the Supreme Court. He put out two lists during the campaign of people he would pick for the Supreme Court. And you know who wasn't on those lists? Brett Kavanaugh. Trump put out 21 names of people he'd pick for the Supreme Court in September of 2016. Kavanaugh wasn't in the top 21. So how does someone who's not in the top 21 get picked for the Supreme Court? He shows up for the first time on a list that Trump puts out in November of 2017. Now, what changed? Not his sterling credentials, not his judicial service. What changed? Two things changed, Preet. The first is a few weeks before Kavanaugh appeared on that list, he wrote a decision in the Garza case where he dissented from the D.C. Circuit saying that a minor in custody as an immigrant should be released to get an abortion. And not only did Kavanaugh issue this decision in accord with the views of the anti-choice forces, that opinion he wrote is a love letter to the right to life movement. He calls the minor's petition to be released a request for abortion on demand. Well, abortion on demand is not a legal phrase, not something judges say, it's a political phrase. It's a disparaging phrase about abortion rights. This minor wasn't demanding an abortion. This minor was seeking a medical procedure. And so using that phrase was a big signal to the right to life movement. So, so are you saying that, that Donald Trump sat back in his office at the White House and read the Garza decision and decided this is my guy? No. What I'm saying is that Kavanaugh campaigned to the right to life movement and they gave him a big gold star next to his name because not only did he call her claim a claim for abortion on demand, he added in that opinion, he said, we talked about uh, Roe and Casey, these decisions, and he called them existing Supreme Court precedent. Now, 
Preet, if my wife introduced me to people as her existing husband, <laughs> I'd be checking the state of our insurance policies, right. okay? So there are signals in that decision about where he's headed on Roe versus Wade. He had earlier that same year in 2017 given a speech praising former Chief Justice Rehnquist for being a dissenter in Roe versus Wade. He was flashing every signal he could to the anti-choice forces, I'm your guy. You're saying something really significant. Are you saying that that he actually sort of shaped his language in a particular opinion, the Garza opinion, as a kind of public audition for the role of Supreme Court justice? Uh, you know, it seems that way to me. I mean, I think you read that opinion and it comes on top of him that same year giving a speech where he embraces Chief Justice Rehnquist as his judicial hero and cites his dissent in row as an example of that. Right. So, you know, look, I, I think Brett Kavanaugh, let me be clear, I think Brett Kavanaugh is certainly qualified, you know, intelligent, he's capable. When he was nominated to the Court of Appeals, I was interviewed by the FBI as part of his background check. I said good things about him then, but he wasn't on that list in September 2016. He got on that list in November 2017. And I think the Garza opinion and the statements he made about abortion between those two periods uh, were one reason why he got on the list. By the way, I should also disclose at this point, I don't know that I said this before, that in 2005, when he had his second hearing and the confirmation vote to go to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, I was chief counsel to Senator Schumer and was on the floor when, when he voted no against, mm -hmm. against Judge Kavanaugh to be on the D.C. Circuit. So how, how do you think it is the case then, Ron, that he got from uh, not being on the list and then putting out these sort of you know, self-promotional catchphrases in opinions and otherwise to actually making it on the list? Like, you know, who, who did the thing that got his name on there? Well, I think that was part of it. And then I think there's a second thing that happened between the list in September 2016 and the list in November 2017. And that second thing was the Mueller investigation. You know, that obviously was not something that existed in September of 2016. But by November of 2017, Donald Trump and his people are looking for a Supreme Court justice who might rule with him if any issues in the Mueller investigation make their way to the Supreme Court. And, you know, Preet, that's a hard thing to look for because to find someone who's going to rule that a president can't be subpoenaed, who's going to rule that a president is subject to legal process, that's a pretty out of the mainstream view with most lawyers. And yet they found someone who holds those views, Brett Kavanaugh. It's even worse, who used to hold the, the opposite view. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so who had the opposite view It's a recent convert to a, to, a, um, to a convenient view, no? A post-2000 convert to a very, very, very extreme view of the president's immunity from legal process, suggesting at one point in time that the classic U.S. v. Nixon case might be wrongly decided, saying that the president can't be subject to a subpoena, writing a whole law review article on how the president should be exempt from legal process. I mean, if, if Donald Trump was looking for someone uh, other than Rudy Giuliani, who had extolled his point of view on these legal issues, it was a very short list, and Brett Kavanaugh really was number one on that list. Can I play devil's advocate for a moment? Sure. Do you think Brett Kavanaugh and other people like him, like Bill Burke, who I know, and people who were smart lawyers, conservative, you know, to the right, who worked for President George W. Bush and also have a certain affection for George H.W. Bush, and they see President Trump demean those folks, belittle them, make fun of them, you know, trash folks like John McCain, who these people also liked and admired. Do you think that Brett Kavanaugh has any respect, admiration, or affection for Donald Trump? It's a hard question to answer, Preet. Obviously, I don't, I don't know. 
I, I do know that he stood. I'm betting. I'm betting not. Well, but I do know that he stood uh, in the East Room on the night he was picked because he wanted to be on the Supreme Court of the United States of America. Yeah, and said that the process by which Donald Trump picked him was the most extensive vetting process in American history. Yeah. So he might be the, the most dramatic suck-up on stage in the White House <laughs> we've ever seen, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he holds the president in high regard. It doesn't, and we'll see. Uh, and look, you know, you never know. And if he's confirmed, we all have to hope for the best because we really have no <laughs> choice at that point in time. I mean, the only thing I'm but, saying is, like, I don't know, I'm speculating about a hypothesis, which you're not supposed to do. And maybe this is, you know, hope springs eternal, that if you get to this point there, isn't there some chance that he thinks to himself, oh my God, this president actually is an abomination to the rule of law, is an abomination to equal justice, is an abomination to free press, and that, you know, in that position, in the future, when he has the job and the door has been shut behind him, maybe he will have a different view. I'm not saying that's what we should rely on, and I'm not yeah. saying that's the basis on which people should vote. But isn't there some possibility that that is so? You know, look, I, I like a good fairy tale as much as the next person. <laughs> and uh, if he is confirmed, that will have to be our hope. But obviously, hope is not a basis for a vote in the U.S. Senate. Correct. And we have to vote based on the record that we've seen and the statements that he's made right. and the things he's written. So speaking of votes, then, that's a good segue into Susan Collins and, yeah. and Roe v. Wade. So you have sketched out pretty persuasive brief here on why he's not going to be a vote to uphold Roe. Meanwhile, he went through the song and dance or the dog and pony show or whatever metaphor you want to use that involves showmanship with Susan Collins, who said she was satisfied because Brett Kavanaugh said something like Roe v. Wade is settled law. Yeah. Why is that meaningless? It is meaningless because, uh, you know, it simply suggests, as he kind of more candidly put it in his decision in Garza, it's the existing Supreme Court precedent. Justice Gorsuch sat before that committee in the summer of 2017 and said that he had a great respect for precedent. The precedent was the anchor of the law. The precedent was the most important thing that judges could rely on. And this past summer, he joined four of his colleagues to overturn a precedent from roughly the same era as Roe, a precedent that had been unanimous, the Abood decision regarding labor rights, and voted to overturn it in the Janus decision this past June. And so vague statements about settled law and precedent just don't cut it. What we do know is that Kavanaugh also told the committee this time in his testimony that he leaned towards a definition of unenumerated rights from an opinion by Justice Rehnquist. And that definition definitely leans against recognizing an abortion right. So you, you take his work on the Court of Appeals, you take him saying Rehnquist was a judicial hero for his dissent in Roe, you put all this together, and it's just as clear as day as to where Brett Kavanaugh is headed if he gets confirmed. And let's just also be clear about one other thing, Preet, to the extent that your listeners say, well, look, I hope Roe versus Wade isn't overturned, but I live in New York or California, and abortion will be legal where I am. It'll be legal for myself or my wife or my daughter or my sister or whatever. That may turn out to be not enough protection because there are academics and there are politicians, and indeed the Iowa legislature tried to enact this last year, who believe that they will not stop at overturning Roe. They will say that a fetus has rights under the 14th Amendment and not only does the Constitution not protect abortion rights, but that the Constitution bans abortions or the Constitution requires some kind of due process procedure before a woman can get an abortion. I mean, every year there's this huge protest in Washington on the anniversary of Roe versus Wade. 
And the people marching that protest do not hold up signs that say federalism now. Right, right. Hold up signs that say ban abortion. And so God, this I, will I think, not I think stop. It's a very, I think it's an incredibly important point in your op-ed on this, on this issue is very powerful. And you talk about something, as you just have, that a lot of people don't focus on. There's no reason to believe, it doesn't make logical sense, that the people who oppose Roe are not just in support of states' rights. They think the practice is is in their entitled to this view, but they think the practice is murder and it should be banned and should be outlawed. And that's just the next step after Roe is overturned. And a step they will use the courts to try to impose on all the states. So even if you live in a blue state, uh, even if you live in a state that has a progressive abortion law on the books now, there's no guaranteeing that the Supreme Court won't go beyond repealing Roe to actually try to strike down some of those laws using the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. You used a fancy lawyer term a minute ago, unenumerated rights. Yeah. What, what does that mean? So uh, a lot of the basis for Roe is a series of decisions by the Supreme Court dating all the way back to the 40s about uh, the fact that in our society we have a concept of ordered liberty, a concept that people have a fundamental right to – run their families and their personal lives, their intimate lives, the way they want. Now, those rights aren't spelled out specifically in the Constitution. They're unenumerated rights. Your right to decide whether or not to have a child, to use birth control, to decide where your child goes to school, whether or not your child learns a foreign language. All these things are kind of personal, intimate family decisions. Historically, the court has upheld those rights as being beyond the reach of government, but whether or not that would continue with a very conservative Supreme Court majority, with Brett Kavanaugh as the fifth vote in that conservative majority, that's a very, very open question. Very well answered, Professor. Look, I, I, think, uh, I think you'd sound pretty good at a hearing. I'm just saying. <laughs> as long as your thanks, documents no, thanks, are going to be clear. But can, yeah, can I ask yeah, a question? Yeah. I know the answer to this question, but I think it's just worth, worth asking in light of this discussion we're having. So if the Federal Society says, you know, other folks say that they want people to be on the court who will not support Roe v. Wade. And Donald Trump, the president who's going to be making the appointing, says the same thing. And they finally have a guy about whom there's all this evidence that he's going to be a vote against Roe v. Wade. Then why not just say that? Well, the problem is they would lose if they were honest about it because a majority, strong majority of the country supports Roe v. Wade and a majority of the U.S. Senate supports Roe v. Wade. And now we get to kind of the votes, right? There are two Republican senators, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, who describe themselves as pro-choice, who say they're committed to Roe versus Wade. Brett Kavanaugh doesn't get confirmed unless he gets their votes. And so they have to do this kind of dipsy doodle where they pick him because he's against Roe versus Wade. Trump promises he's going to pick someone against Roe versus Wade, but they need Collins and Murkowski to blink and vote for him. And so that's why they're trying to, you know, hide the ball on this. Right. You've just used a second fancy legal term, dipsy doodle. Dipsy doodle, yeah. yeah. What is, what is yeah, that, sir? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a very sophisticated <laughs> legal phrase. Okay. So, so what's going to happen? So let's move on from this in a second after you tell me how Collins and Murkowski are going to vote. Well, you know, uh, just like you have hope about Brett Kavanaugh ripping off his mask once he's confirmed and proving himself to be willing to uh, stand up to President Trump, I still have hope that Collins and Murkowski are gettable votes. Senator Collins is committed to a woman's right to choose, and I think the evidence about Kavanaugh is piling up, and hopefully that will resonate with her. The same thing with Senator Murkowski with one other factor, 
now creating some pressure on Senator Murkowski. One other thing that came out at the hearing that may be an obscure issue to many Americans, but an important one to a small group, is Kavanaugh's view on Native American rights. Senator Hirono asked about this. The senator from Hawaii. The senator from Hawaii asked about this and some disparaging things that Judge Kavanaugh wrote about the rights of, of Native Americans in Hawaii. That has resonated with Native American tribes around the country, and they are very influential in the state of Alaska. And so it's possible that those concerns will also press uh, Senator Murkowski to vote against Kavanaugh. So let's talk about some other controversies that happened, because I did not have as many experiences as you in Supreme Court confirmations, but I was in the Senate when we did the confirmation hearings of Alito and Roberts as Chief Justice. Yep. And you, I think, overall, both on the Senate side and in the executive side, have been involved in like eight. There were a lot of allegations that Brett Kavanaugh, depending on the language used by the particular senator, misled, lied, even suggestions of perjury on a number of different issues. What do you make of the allegations that Judge Kavanaugh didn't tell the truth on one or more issues? In my perspective, the fairest thing to say would be that uh, his testimony was misleading. I don't, I don't think it was perjury. I'm not even sure I would go to lie. But I think that... What's, what's the issue on which you think he's most vulnerable to the accusation of being misleading? So I think there are a couple of these things where, uh, you know, to use the old phrase, the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, he told some truth but not quite the whole truth. Right. So... He was asked in his prior confirmation about his involvement in a very controversial judicial nominee, Bill Pryor. And he said, you know, I didn't work on that. And now there are documents that prove that he did work on that. And he kind of clarified and said, well, what what I meant by that was I I really wasn't a primary staffer on that. I didn't have much involvement in that. That's, you know, again, kind of one of those part truth, part untruth things. Right. And also with with respect to whether or not he worked on the confirmation of uh, Judge Pickering too, right? Exactly. Same kind of thing on Pickering. There was this bizarre controversy at the Judiciary Committee where a number of Democrats' documents were stolen by a Republican operative named Manny Miranda. Miranda got those documents to Kavanaugh while he worked in the White House, and Kavanaugh testified before that whatever he saw, he didn't really realize it had been gotten improperly. And again, now there's some emails that say, they came to him with a heading that said spying on them. They had markings on them that suggested they were confidential to the senators who wrote them. And so, again, there's a question of like, well, was he completely forthcoming about that? Likewise, some issues about things he said about his prior work on abortion in the White House and whatnot. Look, the, the bottom line here, Preet, is that with some small percentage of his documents, there are questions about his candor. And that, above all, should be a blinking yellow light that before he's confirmed for life, the Senate needs to see all the documents. These are the questions we have after seeing a small fraction of the documents. What would we think after we saw the, the largest corpus of them that no one has seen yet? Right. And isn't there a reason to, don't you infer, uh, given logic and <laughs> politics, that the, the documents that have not been disclosed are the ones that would be most damaging? I certainly think that's what uh, you would be arguing if you were before a jury and somehow, you know, there was some damaging stuff in a small subset of documents you saw and the defendant was withholding many more documents. That would be, I think, an inference you'd be allowed to put before a jury in this case. Let's talk about some other senators and their role and how they conducted themselves and whether they were auditioning for their own future positions. What do you think about how the chairman Grassley handled the hearing? 
Well, look, I think I think it's a shame. I worked on the Judiciary Committee when Chuck Grassley was a senator there, and he had a reputation for being independent, and he really stuck it to both President Bush's on a number of issues and, you know, in, in devotion to the institution. And I think he gave up on all that in this nomination. He didn't work with Senator Feinstein on the document request. He didn't stand up for the committee's rights to see the documents and really did everything he could to push this nomination through. Why do you think that is? Do you think he's changed his temperament of independence? I think we're seeing this throughout the Republican Party, Preet. I think we're seeing that in general, a lot of these senators who uh, came to office with some kind of sense of independence have just become part of Donald Trump's Republican Party. I think however Trump has done it, he has broken the spirit of a lot of these senators and a lot of them now just kind of nod and go along. A few of them occasionally tweet out some criticism of the guy, but by and large, they they march down to the Senate floor, they vote with him. That's what the Republican Party is today. It is the party of Donald Trump. Nothing more, nothing less. What about ranking member Senator Feinstein? You know, I thought she did a, a very good job of trying to stand up for the committee's prerogatives and put some very good questions to Kavanaugh about abortion, about a lot of of issues. I know she's, you know, she's up for re-election. There's a lot of pressure on her, and I thought she bore up uh, well through right. that. I mean, I thought her statements were very strong. I, I tweeted about them in my time in the Senate, knowing Senator Feinstein and some of her staff very well. She doesn't make super strong statements about people's yeah. character and about their potential lying, and she's sort of done so here. Let's talk about Senator Kamala Harris, who people think is somebody who's going to run for president, who I know and have, and have worked on issues with, I should say. So she had a, an exchange that went fairly yeah. viral with Brett Kavanaugh on the question of whether or not he had ever had any conversation with a member of the firm run by President Trump's personal lawyer, Mark Kazowitz. I think a lot of people observed that Brett Kavanaugh was sort of evasive. Like, what do you mean? Who are you thinking of? And Senator Harris said something like, I think you're thinking of someone you don't want to tell us. <laughs> yeah. Why Why did that go viral and what do you make of that exchange? Well, I think it went viral because it was a one of those rare moments where Kavanaugh seemed like he was drawn off his talking points. Right. And a moment, a rare moment when a senator knew how to ask a question. Knew how to ask a question. And and I think the jury's still out on that in, in this respect. We need to hear what Senator Harris had in mind, what she knew about or thought she knew about and judge that. I mean, then the next day, Mark Kazowitz, the head of that law firm, said no one here had a conversation with Brett Kavanaugh. There are 250 lawyers at the Kazowitz law firm. (laughs) How could he possibly know that, right? So there is something going on here. And before uh, the Senate votes, we need to get to the bottom of it. It's, you know, a lot of things in life, in the courtroom and otherwise, can be revealing separate and apart from a truthful answer. You know, you ask a question, the person's going to lie, the person's not going to tell the truth. But you know what? You can sometimes learn a lot by how someone shifts in his seat. You can learn a lot by how they, you know, bide for time. You can learn a lot by what happens to their brow before they answer your question. And that's why I think part, part of the reason that went viral was not the transcript of what, when, you know, what the back and forth was, but how uncomfortable Brett Kavanaugh looked because he thought someone must know something. And is the next question from the prosecutor, when I deny it, going to be, well, weren't you at such and such place at such and such date? Now, we don't know if Kamala Harris has that or not, and she won't yeah. disclose. I tend to believe that she has some basis, and she said she has a basis. But I, I think actually there should be a lot more questioning like that. Not that hearings in the Senate should all be you know, prosecutorial proceedings, but we need a lot more of that. And I'd say one other thing about that. Kavanaugh's testimony before the committee was, I can't answer your questions about 
Trump being subject to a subpoena. I can't answer your questions about the reach of prosecutors' ability to come after President Trump because those questions may come before me, and it would be inappropriate for me to discuss them with you, members of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Fine. But if it's inappropriate for him to discuss them with members of the Senate Judiciary Committee, who was he discussing these questions with? And his inability to say about her question, oh, look, I couldn't have talked to anyone at the Kazowitz Law Firm because I've never talked to anybody about the Mueller investigation. I just finished telling you it would be inappropriate for me to discuss it. Right. So I must not have discussed it with anyone. You know, that the non-answer kind of belies his core position about these questions before the committee because clearly – He's thinking in his mind, I talked to to someone about this. I don't know if they're at the Kazowitz firm or not. Even if you give him the most benign interpretation of his non-answer, it's an implicit admission that he has discussed these issues with other people. And if he's discussed them with other people, then he should discuss them with the Senate Judiciary Committee. Well, I believe once upon a time... Then Judge Thomas said he had never discussed Roe v. Wade with anyone, yeah. ever. In law school, when he was there, when it was decided, yeah. It seemed, right. It seemed I guess he skipped yeah. that day yeah, and didn't exactly. participate in the class discussion. Why is it, though, that, that Senator Harris won't just say what her basis was for asking the question? Don't know. I think it's a good question, uh, and hopefully we'll find out. Cory Booker had a moment where I think young people may not know what the hell he was talking about when he said, I am Spartacus. Yeah. I don't think if you are Spartacus, you're supposed to say, I am Spartacus. You want yeah. someone else to say like, hey, look, he is Spartacus. Yeah. I don't know. What do you make <laughs> yeah. about the Spartacus? Do you know what the hell was going on there? Yeah. So, I mean, what was really going on there was that uh, he was prepared to use some of these committee confidential documents. And he and his uh, colleagues were all standing up for one another when the Republicans said, if you use these documents publicly, we're going to go get you expelled from the Senate. Both he, Senator Durbin, Senator Harris, ultimately Senator Leahy, others uh, all kind of came together and said, hey, if you're going to go after one of us, you have to go after all of us. That is the I am Spartacus moment. And look, I thought Senator Booker was very effective in putting uh, Judge Kavanaugh on the spot on his views on affirmative action and on his views as race as a legitimate factor in government programs and his use of these documents, which suggested that Kavanaugh did have a very sharp view on this, I thought was very effective. So what happens now? What happens now is that the committee will meet uh, on the uh, 13th of September or 14th of September to hold a vote. Uh, The Democrats will use their rights under committee rules to delay that vote for a week. So sometime around the 20th, 21st of September, Kavanaugh will get a vote in the Judiciary Committee. That vote will be a straight party line vote. You believe every Democrat will vote against and every Republican will vote for I do in the committee. I think that's how it will play out in the committee. And then uh, sometime after that, probably the following week, there'll be a Senate debate and a vote in the Senate. And obviously that will tell. So if Brett Kavanaugh gets confirmed to the court, how long before Roe is actually in jeopardy? Uh, I think, you know, a year or two. Iowa will pass some version of a very, very restrictive abortion law. They passed it before. It's been struck down before. They certainly are teed up to do it. Other states will do it. And it will work its way up to the Supreme Court, whether it's later this term or the following term. I don't think it will be long before we see Roe overturned. And what happens in the case of another Trump nomination? Let's say, God forbid, one of the other justices, let's say one of the liberal justices like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, leaves the court for whatever reason. What about what transpired in this confirmation process will inform what happens 
in a year or two years if we have that moment. Well, God forbid, God forbid, God forbid, and let's start yeah. there. Say and, three, more, and, three more times, you can say. Yes, if, uh, many more times. Look, I think what you saw was uh, a rising of grassroots activism. I mean, you know, one thing, Preet, about this issue is historically, until now, Republicans have had a lot more energy around these judicial nomination issues. And Republicans have gotten their voters out on these issues and have really mobilized their senators on these issues. Right. Democrats, much less. Well, that's in part because Republicans want to undo something and Democrats Correct. have the benefit of the good status quo on some of these issues. Right. I mean, it, you know, it's an interesting paradox because, in fact, we have a pretty conservative Supreme Court. You'd think Republicans would be happy. But on a couple of these big headline issues like abortion and like marriage equality, there have been progressive results at the Supreme Court. And so at the grassroots, Republicans are dissatisfied. They see this as a big political issue. Democrats, not so much. I think you started to see that change this time. You saw larger protests by the anti-Kavanaugh forces and the pro-Kavanaugh forces. You saw the anti-Kavanaugh forces bringing a lot of heat on the Senate. So I do think the tide is turning. And I think in the next nomination, if not, I mean, maybe Kavanaugh will be defeated, even if he's not. I think the pressure from the left will continue to grow. We'll get better and better about organizing and mobilizing on these issues. And I think, and, you know, we'll be even more effective in the Senate next time. Do you think Kavanaugh's going to get any Democratic votes? He might, might get a few. I think it kind of depends. I think if uh, Murkowski and Collins vote against Kavanaugh, I think you might get all the Democrats in line. If, uh, right, looks because like nobody, because nobody has the courage to want to be the deciding vote. Correct. So, so I mean, uh, you know, these if things. If it's a fait accompli, then they'll vote against. Correct. I mean, these things tend not to go by one vote, one way or the other. So, uh, so I think you'll see a little break either for him or against him here at the very end. Right. So is the Senate going to switch hands or not? Don't know. It's a very, very, very tough battlefield. I think we've got a great chance to pick up seats in Nevada and Arizona and Tennessee. But I think, obviously, we've got a number of our incumbents in very red states. Senator Donnelly in Indiana, Senator Heitkamp in North Dakota, Senator McCaskill in Missouri. These are tough races, and it's going to go right down to the wire. How about the House? I think we're going to win the House. I mean, I, again, I think these races, a lot of the races will be close, a lot will be tight. But I think that there are, uh, you know, 26 seats that Secretary Clinton carried in 2016 that have Republican members of Congress. Trump's eroded a lot, I think, since then. And I think that we'll flip most of those seats. We'll flip some others, too. And I do think we'll have a Democratic majority in the House uh, come next year. Can I ask you this thing? Uh, because you're a gentleman and a scholar. For purposes of being a check on what a lot of people think is an overreaching executive in the form of President Trump, which body would you rather have change hands to the Democratic side, the House or the Senate for the country? I mean, look, I think in some ways it would be more important to have the Senate if you could really choose because of its power to confirm or not confirm judges. I mean, we've talked this time about Supreme Court nomination, and obviously it's the central issue right now on the legal side. But, you know, in some ways, the, even the bigger thing or just as big a thing that President Trump has done is stack the lower courts. And the pace with which he's filled lower court nominations is record setting. It's amazing. This man who can't fill the government, can't keep the White House staffed, has, by outsourcing this function of the Federalist Society, has set a record for the number of judges he's nominated to the courts of appeals. They are younger than ever. They are more numerous than ever. They are more conservative than ever. And with a Republican Senate in tow, they are getting confirmed at record speed. He's put more judges on the courts of appeals already than Obama did in his entire first term, even before this midterm election. So having a Democratic Senate as a check on that would be a really powerful and consequential thing. Because I have you, I want to ask you about the raging controversy 
and mystery in Washington and all over the country in the past few days, and that is who is the author of the anonymous New York Times op-ed. And I know you have said publicly, because you didn't want to break the news here on this podcast first, <laughs> for which I will forgive you, but you said it's Dan Coates. Who is he and why is it him? I think a lot of clues point to him. He's the director of national intelligence. He has publicly sparred with the president, which is a rare thing in the Trump administration. He's criticized him publicly. He's contradicted him publicly. So to me, the clues are this. I think the person who wrote it works on the national security side of the house because they've cited the two-track policy on Russia as a success. I, I can't believe there's any person who actually believes Trump's policy on Russia is a success. But if that person exists, they work in national security in the Trump administration. At the same time, I don't think it's a general or some kind of pure national security person because the piece also talks about historic tax cuts and effective deregulation. That's the, that's the rhetoric of a Republican politician. So you're looking for a Republican politician who works in national security issues and who's willing to stand up to Trump. Coates fits that bill. And if you, you add to the fact that the piece ends with a tribute to John McCain, who was a colleague of Coates in the Senate and someone who Coates really liked, yeah, I think the number of clues uh, point to Coates. You know, I'll be disappointed if it's someone who's not a household name. Do you think that person should be resigning instead of writing op-eds anonymously? I do. I think that person, I, I, I don't think it's an act of heroism to write an op-ed and basically say, hey, nine days out of 10, I facilitate what President Trump does. One day out of 10, I find some way to kind of throw a few tacks on the road. If you think the president is unfit, if you think that there was a justified discussion about disqualifying him under the 25th Amendment. You need to come forward with that, explain what the evidence for that is, and let the country decide, let the Congress decide. I'm not a fan of the anonymous op-ed and not a fan of the fact that there's a legion of people apparently inside our government who think that they have some kind of authority to contradict the president. They, right. they don't. They don't. Final question, Ron. During your time working in the White House in various capacities, Ballpark figure, how many anonymous op-eds did you write, but that were not published? Uh, 0. 0.00000. Look, I had <laughs> when my we, disagree- When you have your confirmation hearing and we make the request for those documents, we'll find out if that's true or not. Uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff in documents, I'm sure, but anonymous op-eds saying that the president I worked for was mentally unfit to serve, there are none <laughs> of those in the file, I assure you. Well, that's good to hear. Ron Klain, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Breed. Thanks for having me. So this is the part of the show where I talk about something that struck me, and there is a piece in the Daily News, the put-upon Daily News, by a woman named Barbara Ress, who was a construction executive for the Trump Organization, and she starts out her op-ed with a story that's somewhat disturbing about Donald Trump, and she writes about how on a particular day, an architect came to Donald Trump's office to show him what the interior of the residential elevator cabs would look like at Trump Tower, and she relates that Trump looked at the panels and looked at where the buttons were to, to push to get to a floor and noticed that there were these little dots, raised dots. And she says, Trump told the architect to take it off, to get rid of it. The architect said, we can't, it's the law. And she quotes Trump as saying, get rid of the Braille, although he used an expletive before the word Braille. He says, get rid of the Braille. No blind people are going to live in Trump Tower, just do it. Trump yelled and called the architect weak. And I, I was taken back to the interview we had a few weeks ago with the incredible overachieving Cyrus Habib, who has not had sight since age eight, and all the challenges that he faced and that he overcame. And the last thing we need 
on top of sort of everyday people not having an understanding of the possibilities that are out there for folks who may have a particular disability. But when the president himself denigrates them and makes fun of them and doesn't even seem to know what Braille is, and maybe even more upsettingly, doesn't seem to know what the law requires, even though we're far away in this country from, among other things, the Americans with Disabilities Act that was passed 28 years ago, it's a problem. And it reminds me also of all the good people in my old office who used to do work to enforce the Americans with Disabilities Act to make sure that restaurants were accessible, that movie theaters were accessible, that Broadway theaters were accessible, and took a lot of pains to enforce the law, suing people when we had to. You know, one, one of the cases that we began when I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office had to do with education in New York City. And, you know, lots of people don't realize that if your child has a disability and the local school can't accommodate you, then you have to bus yourself far, far away, which takes you away from your community, which takes you away from the local friends. It takes you away from your parents having an opportunity to be invested in your education. There was a story that was heartbreaking about a mom who literally, because there were no elevators in a local public school, went to the school, not wanting her daughter to be bused far away, and carried her daughter in her arms up and down the stairs in between periods every day. And that's in modern America. And that shouldn't be. Over the weekend, I'm on Twitter a lot, and I read a Twitter thread from someone named at Coffee Spoonie, who's just describing her plight saying in her first tweet, trying not to cry in the car right now because everywhere we've tried to go for dinner and we're like on the eighth place, can't accommodate my wheelchair. So everyone's grumpy and hungry and been driving around for an hour and a half because of this. And you keep reading the thread and it's a simple request that she has to be able to eat with her family at a restaurant. She writes, the last hostess gave me a whole 10 minute explanation about why none of the wheelchair accessible sections can seat five people. And she writes, this doesn't feel good. And she says, so I'm hiding my face in my phone. Then a lot of people on Twitter, which is usually a cesspool of hatred and negativity in this instance, was positive. And she responds to the outpouring that she got and says, thank you all so much. Wow, I was not ready for all the support. If anyone was curious, and this story has a happy ending, we ended up finding a place just not in Portland. They gave us a big, beautiful table. It was accessible. I got delicious food. Everyone was kind, and it was absolutely lovely. And then she says something even more pointed. She says, you know, my eyes did do a quick leak once we were waiting, just because of the embarrassment, frustration of it all. I don't know why I felt embarrassed when it's their damn establishments that are in the wrong. But no one but my boyfriend noticed. And then I was handed a pink drink, so I was fine. And it just occurs to me that in 2018, in the United States of America, that it shouldn't be so difficult to go have a meal. It shouldn't be shocking to somebody who became the president that Braille is in the elevator. And it shouldn't take a pink drink, although I endorse pink drinks everywhere, to make things fine. The last thing I would say is, given the lawyer in me, is that I hope that U.S. attorney's offices around the country and attorney general's offices around the country are continuing their work to enforce you know, all the laws to make sure that places are accessible for everyone because that's the kind of country we want to live in. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Ron Klain. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. 
Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send me an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Kat Aaron, Chris Barube, Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, Vinay Basti, and Jake McAbee. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.